Hello, and welcome once again to Stray Bullets, a podcast reflecting on my time in the Royal Ulster Constabulary during the Northern Ireland Troubles. Again, before I start, I must add the following disclaimer, that the views, accounts and thoughts which follow are mine and mine alone. I do not speak on behalf of the Royal Ulster Constabulary as such. Unfortunately, I must add this caveat as I continue to receive some quite cutting remarks from ex-colleagues especially some who held quite a senior rank. However, on that note, I feel I have to add that I've always been an open-minded thinker and never ever towed the party line. Thanks. In this episode, I'll recount an incident which occurred back in 1993 in Murphy, West Belfast. To better let me recount the events, I'll again wrap them in an narrative framework in which I'll also add some of my thoughts regarding the conflict. Flat sunlight splintered on the reptilian skin of our Land Rover. I'd wedged a small toy stuffed elephant which I'd found earlier in the Land Rover's windshield grill. Some kid must have flung it from their pram to where it lay under clumps of tall oat grass and the indignity of time until I found it one late afternoon. A little sign of normality amongst the hard edges and dull glass of our convoy, which comprised of a police Land Rover laden, the military following, then our truck, and finally behind us, another military Land Rover. Of late the threat of a rocket or bomb attack had become so regular that from two police Land Rovers plus one military escort Land Rover, we had gained an additional military escort. Between our truck and the military escort in front was an armoured Sierra, belonging to CID. Our convoy was grumbling its way up the Springfield Road towards an address in Ballamurphy. It was mid-morning, about 15 minutes earlier, we'd met CID in Grosvenor Road RUC station. Just a quick call to an address in the Murph, the two detectives told us, to record a statement. That was fine, we didn't ask any more and they didn't volunteer any more information. No, it was fine. They'd take their own car, they said. It was obvious they wanted to avoid any small talk with us, and we knew the score from their expressions anyway. So here we were, driving through the flat light of the day in the Ballamurphy. Just to mix things up a bit, our lead vehicle drove past both of the two roads, which would have taken us straight into Ballamurphy from the Springfield Road, and on up to the main junction, which was known locally as Kelly's Corner, where we all took a left down the White Rock Road. Then shortly after another, we took a left, which brought us into Ballamurphy and close to the address which CID wanted to visit. A warm breeze met us as we clanked the doors of our trucks. Thankful for the coolness of the short sleeve order, CID strolled into the address we cautiously scouted through rear alleyways and along pavements, aware of our military colleagues doing likewise. While they sweated under the heavy weave of their combats, a police and military foot patrol had already crossed from the New Barnsley station and was already skirting the centre of Ballamurphy, a meeting of roads around a handful of shops, which was known as the Bull Ring. Traffic through the Murph as we knew Ballamurphy was light, 
the foot patrol would have been conducting rolling VCPs along their route to stop the occasional vehicle. For a moment I found myself looking up at the pale roofs, which pressed upon tired walls. Concrete gardens lay below, choked by rivers of asphalt. Not unlike the blanched block walls and high metal meshes surrounding our own police stations or military barracks. No, very unlike I cracked it myself. History determined that we could only operate in places like West Belfast from behind heavily fortified barracks. The people here, like their working class equivalents on the Shankill and beyond, lived in boxes of brick, many with sunless futures, fed on the bitterness of a misgoverned past and contested present. Just a couple of statements CID had told us. That's fine, we estimated it'd only be an hour at the most. That was two hours ago, so basically we had 10 uniform officers plus around 24 soldiers tied up in Ballamurphy. This was 1993, so even while the provisional IRA were beginning to wind down a number of operations they were conducting due to security force infiltration and ongoing backdoor communications between the British government and Sinn Féin, there was still no place for complacency as the threat of an attack remained extremely high. Besides, there was no off switch for us, ever. The expectation of a violent death or traumatic injury had become part of our genetic coding. The thoughts of death flowed through our minds and our veins, red dreams flickering in the darkness, staining the walls of sleep with the pounding pressure of an explosion, the suddenness of air rushing from your lungs replaced by a devouring heat. Even without the dreams, the night terrors, the flashbacks, in the waking hours of the day, your muscles trembled involuntarily, tensing, as if waiting for the onrush of air, heralding the bullet's flight, just in that fleeting, unknown moment, before it burst through your flesh, exploding bone and muscle, as it spiralled and splintered into someone else's dream of victory. And here I was, uniformed and carrying an automatic rifle. Even though it was set to single shot or bursts of three only, it seemed to be just another lethal totem to brandish in our little tribal war. Us, like some remnant of colonialism, coexisting in the shadow of narrow terraces and the lifeless waste grounds. Coexisting, maybe, but still kept apart by the whip-snap of coloured rags rippling from lampposts and the contagion of ignorance and fear. Children's voices shook me from the delirium of my thoughts. Despite everything, there was still the curiosity of children, especially if their street was clogged by a number of armoured Land Rovers with police and soldiers milling around. About six or seven kids sauntered over, egging one another towards us, the peelers or orangees. The army were just Brits. Orangees was just a collective term I heard a lot of kids used to refer to us, the RUC. They had learned, or been taught, rightly or wrongly, by their family or friends, that we, the Royal Ulster Constabulary, were basically orange men in police uniform, here to carry out the will of political unionism upon the Catholic population of Northern Ireland. Maybe that's the way it was in the past, 
But I used to rankle at being called an orangey. I had no time for the orange order, a little interest in them either. Especially when myself and thousands of my colleagues had to spend days away from proper policing of crime, instead performing traffic and parade duties, which went on for months and always ended up in some form of disorder, somewhere. As for organised religion itself, I rejected having to wear the stain of a religion from birth. Something I have had no say in, but something I've never felt any connection to or belief in, much like royalty or the proclamation, just creations to give our species something to murder one another for. The kids asked us loads of questions. They were still kids after all, about the coloured switches in our wagons, how fast they went, the sound of siren, or about our guns, and if we'd ever shot anyone. I often wondered what they really thought of us. Not a great deal I imagined, other than that we were curiosities, monstrous possibly, out to murder their fathers and brothers with our guns, or to put an orange boot upon their friends' throats. I don't know, but the thoughts depressed me, as did that separateness, that of our strangeness manifested by our uniforms, the symbolism of such for them, by our heavily armed presence, by the bombings and the shootings, I imagined if I lay down on some street in West Belfast the kids would come and stir just to see death, to know the heat of blood cooling under a marble sun. Part of growing up here was watching or knowing someone else is dying. Death was everywhere, packed behind a lamppost access door, waiting to tear a passing soldier in half. Or the heavy flight of mortar bombs initiated by an electrical pulse. I remember a few days into my initial training, I was sat with the members of my squad in a darkened room as images of amputations and corpses were projected onto a screen in front of us, crime scene photographs of the ruin of people by bombs and bullets, a leg swollen with blood and impaled by a table leg, a man with chunks of flesh blasted out from his chest by shrapnel, even the face of a young woman half blackened by fire, one eye discoloured and bulging from its sockets. We spent about roughly an hour being shown death in all its murderous colours and forms. Then we'd be asked if anyone still wanted to be in the police. Of course, no one said they didn't. We just remained stoic, if not a little disturbed and confused by the charnel images, after which we'd be taken outside to do some practical training about, say, maybe routine traffic offences, possibly even thefts, and irrelevant legislation. Almost like a little switch in your head, where you could turn off atrocity and switch to nuances of the law, maybe even state of cases. This became such of a habit that we could do it even without thinking later on. Even so, it was hard to shake the blood out of your eyes even when trying to talk to local kids. Some part of you wanted them to see you just as a human. But I know, as I'm sure we all did, that we were just a uniform, a gun, and the figure that would someday create an absence in their life, that they would fill with hatred and distrust. Still, the time went on, and there was no sign of CID. Some of us had asked them to wrap things up. We never liked hanging around, and what we knew as a hard area. Areas 
where a weapon or a device could quickly be moved to and set in place for us, either as we stood around or were leaving. It usually depended on which CID officers you got though. I worked directly with CID a number of times, already at that stage of my career. On some of those occasions in the CID office, and because I'd been wearing a suit too, I'd hear them deride uniform officers as green frogs, or the uniform were so stupid that they'd muck up evidence at scenes or hamper investigations. I just let it go over my head. As far as I was concerned, the majority of CID were decent and had little or no errors or graces about themselves. Besides, they'd chosen to work in offices and the like, while uniform were primarily at the sharp end of the terrorist plotting. Besides, I didn't think CID sought to create some form of fantasy class system in policing. Anyway, we must have been stuck there a good two hours while CID recorded statements or whatever it was they were doing then. Things started to move swiftly, though, when we began to notice nearly every window facing on onto the street had been opened. The kids had vanished too. It was just us Egypt who remained exposed under a drifting afternoon sun. We radioed the control room, let them know what was happening. Or, as the case was, what wasn't happening, i.e. us accident Bala Murphy. I knew we'd overstayed our welcome. The locals had gradually evaporated like rain falling on summer pavements. The kids had gone and taken their questions with them. And now your heart beats a little faster. There's still a bit of conversation and crack with your colleagues, but your mouth's dry. Your head starts to ache. What the hell are CID playing at? Your gaze falls on a small homemade plaque set halfway up a gable wall. It's a memorial of sorts. The two Parapmet volunteers who were killed on active service in the area way back in the 1970s. But its presence serves as a continuity of folk memory of people in place, a memorialisation of the past informing the present and seeking to embed itself in the foundations of the future. That's our little microcosm here. The commemoration of the dead. Our dead. Their dead. Long after they have been consumed by time, their names and deeds are kept alive in service of how the past may be reinstated into the present. Upon reflection, there was no clear victor in the context of the troubles, so the past is up for grabs. we may define as definitive. While I read the names and dates painted on that plaque and knew it was a symbol of the cult of the dead, of self-sacrifice in our society, a boundary marker, antitemic symbol, laying claim to hereditary ideology and sense of community of which, due to circumstances of birth, I was not a part of. I was thinking that if I died that day, due to a bomber bullet, my hot blood stain in the dry curbstones, there would be no plaque set above my place of death to remember me, as there would Republicans, or even in other parts of the city loyalists. I would be an absence, an anti-memory. In life, I imagined, those who wished me dead saw me only as a uniform of an oppressive colonist empire, a uniform filled only with the vapour of domination and death, I would be afforded 
the same vaporous inhumanity of absence. If you look around the streets of Belfast where plaques and murals are raised to the dead of either tribe, you'll notice none to any police or soldier who may have been murdered on those self-same streets. I think it's because our existence was and still is viewed as an abomination and abhorrence by many in those areas. As police officers or soldiers, they would see us as deserving of death. So it is that we are also deserving of being forgotten, of being merely an instrument facilitating the suffering of a community and the martyring of its heroes. I know that my thoughts will smack of self-pity to some, but these podcasts are an opportunity for me to exercise my feelings in whatever form or manner they emerge. For counter-narratives of the troubles to thrive, the adversary of each must be successfully demonised and dehumanised. Just as a bit of an aside, I'd like to read from a book which is called A Tomb With A View. The author is Peter Ross and it's published by Headline. I'm going to read from pages 86 and 87 of the chapter entitled Lilies where the author is taken about West Belfast by Danny Morrison. He begins, There on Ivy Drive in September 1971, 17-month-old Angela Gallagher was killed in her pram by a ricocheting bullet from the gun of an IRA sniper shooting at an army patrol. As her eight-year-old sister wheeled her along to a sweet shop, Morrison had been in his bedroom writing an essay for his A-levels when he heard the shot and ran out to see what happened. He arrived in time to see the child being carried in the arms of a neighbour, Nora McCabe and Angela Galhar, are both buried in Milltown Cemetery. In the two hours or so I spent with Morrison, the body count kept rising. A 15-year-old boy in that newsagent over there was shot dead. The newsagent on this side of the road was shot dead for selling on Foblat, the Republican news. The guy above the barber shop was shot dead by the loyalists. A butcher was shot dead in the shop further up. Young lad, IRA man, shot dead by the RUC here. It's astonishing, I said to him, the way he sees the city through his eyes. It's just bodies. Well, that's the price of the struggle. I can't help but view Belfast that way. The dead are always with us, and sometimes more powerful after death than they were in life. That is striking. The extent to which, in this part of Belfast, martyrdom is built into the very bricks. Those black plaques are everywhere, commemorating our members of the IRA and other paramilitary groups, often at a place where they fell. Murals depict the fallen as heroic figures. Gardens of remembrance soothe the memory and valentines with well-tended flowers. What you won't see is the poppy the symbol of sacrifice and remembrance, ubiquitous, almost sacred in England, is absent from West Belfast. As we walked, Morrison had pointed out where British soldiers had been killed. He did so without any sense of triumph or relish or sorrow or regret. They were just another part of his necrology. It seems to me, an outsider, a pity that the deaths of British soldiers are invisible. No plaques for them, no golden letters to mark where their blood was spilled where leaves leaked away. <clears throat> this seems, if nothing else, poor storytelling. In the 50 years between 1969 and 2019, 
there were approximately 3,600 deaths in the Troubles, according to the Ministry of Defence. More than 1,400 members of the UK Armed Forces were among the dead. For those deaths not to be marked on the walls of Belfast means that the narrative is incomplete. The streets are like a book, with every third page ripped out. Is there no chance, I asked Morrison, of those soldiers being memorialised here in some way? He shook his head. It was all still too raw and recent and personal. The history of the Troubles is disputed territory, heavily mined with grudges. You could commemorate a soldier who had maybe killed your brother. And then he said one thing which, during our time together, truly gave me pause. The families of English soldiers, he seemed to suggest, are almost blasé about losing their sons overseas. What he meant was that in the long history of empire, has normalised the idea of death and service. Johnny joins up and is killed in India or Cyprus or Belfast and that's the end of it. Well, that's not the end of it for us, said Morrison. Our dead are precious. I was surprised by this. Morrison is a very intelligent and reflective person. Yet here he seemed unable to see the world through the eyes of others. No side of any war has a monopoly on tears. Ross's book only contains one chapter about the Troubles, but in saying that, it's an interesting one. And in light of what I've just read, it exemplifies, in a way, killing without conscience. Or you see officers, soldiers, and even those deemed as legitimate targets, a fluid term used by the provisional IRA to justify the deliberate murder of civilians, become little more than vaporous spectres, haunting the streets, where they were unwelcome. Their slaying by the para would see a brief flurry of security force activity until the corpses are quickly removed from a community which was indifferent to dead soldiers or police. I imagine they were viewed, those corpses, in much the same way as if it had been bags of rubbish the council had been removing and not bodies. And as we return, the Bala Murphy. There was no more time for gazing around and ruminating. By that time we had radio control and informed them that CID needed the exit now because of the warning signs we had observed together with the fact that our vehicles as well as a foot patrol had been tied up with CID for far too long. As a section working along with our military and neighbourhood patrol colleagues we'd become somewhat adept at noticing risk indicators and having developed systems of survival and response. It was annoying to have such now jeopardised by say CID who were not as threat aware. So about five minutes later CID emerged from the address, nodded to us and got into their vehicle. We quickly crewed up and left Bala Murphy escorted by the foot patrol. We were glad to be uncoupled from a potentially hazardous environment and to be honest, a bit surprised that would not come under some form of attack, either as we'd been static or during our exit. However, the local para active service unit had not been idle. As expected, the duration of our stay in Bala Murphy had given them time to rig up an improvised explosive device. They had rigged it up behind a six foot high brick wall, which ran about 15 feet perpendicularly from the mouth of an alleyway. Four feet up the wall 
on the alley side. A command wire was attached to it, but we had left just before the active service unit could attach the other end to the firing pack. Not to be outdone, they left the device in situ for the next foot patrol. Coming through that evening. Sure, they might get lucky and kill or seriously injure a soldier or peeler or even both. Well, a patrol did pass by the wall. One of my old colleagues was walking with the brick commander when the device was detonated. Unfortunately for Para, but luckily for my colleague and the soldiers, the active service unit had not constructed and set the device in such a manner that the blast would be directed out horizontally through the wall and as such carry fragments of brick and metal into one or more of my colleagues. Instead the blast threw some fragments of brick up and over the patrol and left them largely unscathed apart from some very minor injuries. And just like that another incident that went unreported occurred. As no one was killed the regularity and savagery of the conflict was such that if an attack didn't result in death or serious injury that it went unreported. Well thanks for joining me. I'd just like to say my next episode which I hope to conduct and complete very soon will be something very different entirely. Thank you.